All right. Hey, everyone. I'm here with Edward Nirenberg. How's it going, Edward? I'm okay. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm excited to talk about this because there's obviously a lot of interest about the COVID vaccines. Can you go through your credentials real quick so people know why I'm asking you these questions? Yeah, uh, so I've got a BSc in biochemistry. And while I was working on that, I was um, most of my coursework actually focused on immunology. I worked in an immunology lab that studied macrophages, which are these kind of they're kind of like the workhorses of your immune system. They're like a million different kinds and they're really cool. So Um, and I was also in the department journal club. uh, And later on, I started to focus more on vaccines. And I've been doing that for a couple Hmm. of years now. Um, Yeah. Awesome. Cool. So that's why I'm asking Ed these questions. He's really smart about this stuff. He knows what he's talking about. And he's he's fun to discuss with. So we'll start with the basics and then get more into the more advanced <laughs> questions and just start with a good first one. So has the virus been isolated? I hear this all the time. People ask, has the virus been isolated in a million different ways? So what would you, what would you say to this one? Literally thousands of times. Um, I, I don't know. Times. Yeah, I don't really know why this is so confusing for people. But yes, this virus has been isolated many, many times over. Um, first time was, I guess, technically in December when they first like actually isolated it. They sequenced it in the very beginning of January, in uh, December 2019, January 2020. Now we have <clears throat> various tr- trackers that you can use to monitor the mutations in the virus. So. All of that requires isolation of the virus and genome sequencing of the virus. Um, we also have animal models where we can infect animals with the virus and they develop COVID-19. Um, it's not quite exactly like COVID-19 in humans. Um, they don't, we, we're having this problem where they don't quite seem to develop severe COVID-19 because <clears throat> their immune systems are a little bit different, but the animal models are getting closer and closer there. Um, and uh, we also have cell culture. We have electron microscopy images of it. This, this virus has been isolated. I'm not sure why that's so confusing for people, but yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that this is actually a myth? Because a lot of people view it as a slam dunk, like this virus hasn't even been isolated. Uh, do you see any like the justification behind this view? When, Maybe when germ I, theory? When I probe about it, I usually get some mumbling about Koch's postulates. Um, which confuses me. So um, for those who might not be aware, um, there was a physician in the 19th century named Robert Koch, and he figured out these really important rules called Koch's postulates that are four criteria that tell you when an infectious agent is responsible for a disease. And basically the criteria are that that infectious agent has to be regularly associated with the disease and its lesions, that the organism must be isolated from the disease host and grown in culture, the disease must be reproduced when a pure culture of the organism is introduced into a healthy, susceptible host, and that same organism should be uh, be able to be re-isolated from that experimentally infected host. Uh, and this was really powerful because um, it was actually used to show that um, Bacillus anthracis is the bacteria that causes anthrax, and that wasn't the same as the bacteria that causes tuberculosis. So the time was really important, uh, but as our understanding of biology has evolved, we've, um, we've discovered that this isn't really quite good enough. So basically, mm. um, uh, for one thing, this doesn't consider things like your microbiome, right? Because you're constantly colonized by a bunch of different bacteria, viruses, fungi, even archaea. Um, and you could isolate those potentially oh. and culture them. And that has absolutely nothing to do with any diseases you may have. Um, and also, it really doesn't work well when you apply it to viruses. Um, I believe 
that viruses had not yet been quite discovered when Koch came up with this, but it quickly ah. um, became a problem uh, when you started applying it to viral infections. Like, for example, um, for polio, only about 1% of cases of polio cause paralysis. So, like, you could isolate polio and it doesn't really, like, like from people who are infected and they might not have any overt disease. Some cases you might have people who are infected with influenza that also don't have any disease. But, you know, that's not really, like, an excuse to say, like, these diseases aren't a big deal because even though that's true, influenza kills tens of thousands of people in the U.S. every year. Polio paralyzes tens of thousands of people every year before we have the vaccine. So, I mean, um, it's really quite a lot. And basically... We have like a more modern version of Koch's postulates now, and they're like complicated, but they uh, mostly revolve around what are called nucleic acid amplification techniques, which are um, a family of techniques that PCR belongs to, where basically um, you should be able to sequence the agent that's causing disease from particular tissues that it's known to infect um, is like the major additional criteria that they came up with. Um, Mm. But again, like, uh, in practice, it's hard to like really apply cautious postulates because part of it is that you have to experimentally infect another organism. And if you're talking about a human, um, that would <laughs> generally mean you would have to, yeah, um, <laughs> right. we, we do, we do have human challenge studies occasionally. They're actually going to be done for COVID-19. They might have actually already started, um, where they're recruiting is healthy that volunteers. when you give it to someone? Yeah. So they're going to deliberately infect people with SARS-CoV-2 and cause COVID-19, um, to try to learn more about the disease, they're looking at healthy subjects. Um, I have a lot of mixed feelings about this. I don't really think it's a good idea because we know that even people who appear to be healthy um, can t- can really take a turn for the worst. Right, <laughs> that's a brave it, volunteer. Brave or very desperate, because um, they do. Oh. I believe that there is financial compensation involved for participating. Oh, that's in getting studies. into some great territory. Yeah, uh, for sure. I mean, uh, there was like a really big push before the vaccine came out to try to assess whether it works with human challenge studies, because those could be accomplished very quickly um, relative to a large phase three trial, like what was done with the vaccine. But honestly, I don't think that um, that would have been the right way to go as far as getting us a vaccine. Um, I see. So do you think... Yeah. Do you think this has anything to do with people thinking the virus doesn't exist? Like, oh, the virus hasn't even been isolated. There is no COVID vaccine. There is no COVID-19 at all. You know, germ theory is a myth. Do you think it kind of plays into that worldview at all? I think that there is definitely a magical thinking component associated with that. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that, too. Like, if, if the virus doesn't exist, you can't isolate it. So, OK, I think that that makes sense for that one. It has been isolated and apparently many times. So, yeah, you can right, literally track it. Like, we have, um, we have websites. And like you can look this up. Yeah, we have websites like Next Strain. You can literally see how its sequence changes over time oh. as you get isolated oh, so. from different people. You have, um, there are also uh, GISAID, uh, G-I-S-A-I-D, I forgot what that stands for, but it used to be um, a tracker for different influenza strains, and now they also um, have added COVID, uh, SARS-CoV-2 strains to it. Well, uh, isolates, I should say, not strains. What was um, the website? GISAID, G-I-S-A-I-D dot com, I think. And there's- cool next strain and then there's also a bunch of um genomic epidemiologists who are uploading their work on um github um yeah awesome. but it's, it's, yeah like you can it's kind of a ridiculous argument like we have yeah. electron microscopy images <laughs> of it we've sequenced it over and over again if you do a pcr on someone who obviously has COVID 19 it will assuming you got a good sample come back positive like it, right i don't know 
Okay, so so it has been isolated. So let's go to question yeah. number two and the basic questions for the most part. Mm-hmm. How is the vaccine made? So I guess start with the MNRA vaccines and go into the um, maybe the Oxford vaccines. But yeah, how would you answer this? Just, you know, for someone asking, how how do you make this kind of thing? Uh, it's actually really easy to make the mRNA vaccines. Uh, so once they had the sequence of the virus isolated in January, they just needed to see what the sequence of the spike protein was. They had prior data from prior work on coronaviruses to figure out that you can add a certain sequence of the spike protein to essentially make it stable and better at producing antibodies when you uh, introduce it into people. So anyway, once you have a sequence, you just put that into an mRNA. You put that okay. mRNA into a fat bubble, and that's basically your vaccine. And you just oh, so you need the sequence that's been isolated to make mm-hmm. the vaccine. So the fact the vaccine exists proves that it's been isolated. Yeah. You can think of it like that. Yeah. Um, the other approach, so this is what like Oxford and Johnson and Johnson did. They did something called a vectored vaccine. So this is where you take a different virus that isn't SARS-CoV-2. You pull out certain genes basically to, uh, in this case, it, they make it incapable of replicating. So it works more like an inactivated vaccine than a live attenuated one, like something like MMR. And you just stick mm. in the gene for the spike protein in there. So then it shows the spike protein on its surface. And then it tries to initiate an infectious cycle, basically. Like it goes into your cells, but once it's there, it can't really do anything because we've taken away its ability to replicate. And uh, the immune system will make a response against the spike protein. Oh, so that's why it's not necessarily a risk because it can't replicate and it's not harmful. So it's not a live vaccine. Yeah, it, functionally, it's not live. I mean, even like the concept of a live vaccine when it comes to viruses is a little bit philosophical because there's a lot of debate about whether or not you could consider viruses to be living. Um, but, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fun. that's a funny response. OK, so that's that's how this thing works. It's a little more simple than I had expected. So, yeah. So how does the how does the mRNA vaccine itself work and how does that work compared to the Oxford vaccine that doesn't use mRNA? Um, well, basically, the mRNA uh, contains the instructions for the spike protein. It uses that little bubble of fat to get into your cells. Once it's inside your cells, your cells can't really tell apart this RNA from RNA that your cells are always making, and they will make lots of copies of the spike protein. And then your cells will go and mm. display that spike protein on their surface that will elicit antibodies, that will elicit T cells, and that will prepare you for in case you ever encounter SARS-CoV-2 again to have a rapid and robust response against it before it has a chance to cause disease. And um, the concept for the uh, vectored vaccines, basically kind of the same thing. The only difference is that the adenovirus vectors are DNA viruses. So their DNA actually ends up going into your nucleus and then that gets made into an RNA. Then that RNA contains instructions for the spike protein and then your cells make the spike protein and from there it's the same thing. So it's kind of an extra step with the Oxford vaccine? Mm -hmm. Kind of, yeah. Interesting. And so is there any any safety profile difference? Because I've, I've read a lot of people are more comfortable with the Oxford vaccine because it's not new technology, but I haven't read that there's like any safety evidence that it's like dramatically safer, even safer at all, unless I'm maybe missing something there. I mean, their phase three trials both look fine in terms of safety. The only reason that Oxford's probably hasn't been allowed to really petition for EUA is because there's some lack of clarity with their efficacy. So one of the problems with using a vaccine like Oxford in terms of the efficacy is you want to ensure that you're getting responses to the spike protein and not to the other parts of the virus that are attached to it. 
So if you ah. dose it incorrectly, you can get potential problems. Like the thought is that they gave a higher dose of the vaccine to people um, in one of the trials. And because of that, the immune system decided to ignore the spike protein and instead direct its response against the vector. And so that resulted in a lower efficacy. But it's not totally clear mm. what's happening there. So the FDA isn't going to consider it for approval until they get like a real like concrete estimate of how effective it is. That makes sense. They don't want to just kind of ballpark it and see what happens. Yeah. Um, but as far as they is it approved you know, in other countries? Yes. Um, I, I forgot which ones. I believe it's approved. I, I'm pretty sure it's approved in the UK. Um, I think I believe it. Uh, India did not approve it for similar reasons. I, I forget. There's a tracker for these kinds of things, so it's easy enough to look up. Mm. Um, yeah. But as far as the safety in both of the, in all of their trials, there aren't any significant safety issues noted for any of these vaccines. Gotcha. Okay. So. In that case, this is a common thing I see a lot. And this was probably one of the most common questions I had when I asked, what would you ask about COVID-19 if you were curious about the vaccines? And it's, is the vaccine safer than the wild disease? You know, because a lot of people say, oh, especially for their age range, say someone's like 25 or something. Oh, if I get COVID, I have a 99% chance of living. So I would just, why would I get the vaccine, you know, for my age range? So what would you say to that common intuition there? I would say that I have friends working in ERs right now, and I get a report every day about how, like, there are two previously healthy 30-something-year-olds who they had to intubate or who had a stroke because of COVID-19. And that's um, not the case with the vaccines. That, that is definitely not the case with the vaccines. Um, the only real question that, I mean, honestly, isn't even really a question is um, what to do about the pediatric patients. So we're not going to start vaccinating kids with this until we have a special clinical trial that shows that it's okay to mm. vaccinate kids with this. And that's currently underway. Um, so that's where the age range question might come into play. Yeah, um, for the most part, when kids get COVID-19, it's a lot milder for them. Uh, but the important issue that we're dealing with uh, with respect to kids. So first of all, there's multi-system inflammatory syndrome, uh, which is a really, really crazy disease that we don't really understand. It usually happens weeks after the initial COVID-19 infection that basically looks a lot like toxic shock syndrome. Um, which is uh, really dangerous. It, it causes this really crazy, overwhelming inflammatory response in the body. Um, and it's pretty hard to control. Um, so that's one reason. But the other side is kids are important vectors. So we don't want them right. to be getting infected with SARS-CoV-2 and then giving it to their grandparents. Um, and this is kind right. of like the rationale for like the rubella vaccine. Like uh, almost everyone, like rubella is basically a nuisance cold for most people, unless you're a fetus or pregnant in which case it causes horrific congenital anomalies. I see. So so we'll get into the um, transmissions later, because I guess it will depend on whether or not the vaccine actually prevents spread on whether or not we decide if we're going to give it to kids, or at least that's going to be an important factor since we don't um, know that probably, yet. Probably. And that it, it's a little bit more complex than we don't know that yet, but we, we will get to that. Oh, yes, yes, we will. We sure will. So, th and this question follows up from the last one pretty perfectly. This is kind of the same question, honestly. If I have a really strong immune system, do I really need the vaccine? My, and this is very common. Like, I have an immune system, it's strong. And one thing I like to point out as well, everyone who's ever died from a disease also has an immune system. So... I don't know how having an immune system is just the, you know, golden ticket out of any of these problems, but a lot of yeah. them say, oh, well, I have a compromised immune system. I have a strong immune system is usually the response to that. So uh, what do you, what would you say? Well, I like, these questions always confuse me because if you ask me or any immunologist, like 
to define a strong immune system. Like, I don't know what that means. Like, I can't ask, I can't like get someone's blood or aspirate their bone marrow or look in their lymph node and be like, aha, yes, this is a strong immune system. You know, like that, that's a meaningless <laughs> statement to me. Like, I can't, like, there's, no, there's no blood test that can be ordered that says immune system that gives me a number. And it's like, okay, normal range, strong, weak, equivocal. I don't know. Like, I see. Um, you know, like the immune system is a, a system. You can't like it's like it's not easily quantified like that. Um, and it depends on context. You know, it might be strong for you here, but not here. I mean, you know, like for any infection to be able to occur and cause disease and everything, it has to have ways of getting around your immune system. We would never get sick with SARS-CoV-2 with COVID-19 if it didn't have ways of getting around our immune system. It, it, it just it doesn't really make sense. Um, and on top of that, like what's really happening here, it seems to be that the the virus is suppressing our innate immune system and replicating out of control. And then to deal with that, our immune system is initiating a catastrophic, gigantic inflammatory response to try to frantically clear the virus in the later stage of the disease. So in that circumstance, having a quote unquote strong immune system would actually be worse for you um, than if you had a weak oh. one. Oh, and it's actually getting infected. Interesting. Yeah, actually, I've, I've read that in other areas too. Yeah. Or that actually, response. Um, it's thought that in younger children, one of the reasons that they fare so well is because they can't really initiate those kinds of like crazy inflammatory responses most of the time. Oh, so since kids are actually potentially protected because of their weak immune systems, which is actually a benefit. That, that's one of the thoughts. Responding. Um, yeah, it's thought that that could be it. The other factor that comes in is they have like really trigger happy innate immune systems that just like kind of respond to everything um so it's thought that they are able to gain control of the infection earlier on more quickly um but it's not totally clear i see in any case, okay we know that the vaccine protects you regardless of who you are and regardless of how strong your immune system is if you are severely immunologically compromised to the point that it's unlikely that you could make an effective response to the vaccine like if you don't have any t-cells for example um, it might not be worth getting. That's like really a circumstance that patients should talk to their care team about. But really, um, the only reason not to get one of these vaccines is if it's contraindicated for you. I see. And you and you would probably know that already if it was. If you were severely immunocompromised, hopefully you're aware of that. Well, so. if you're severely immunocompromised, I mean, depending on the cause, you'd know very early on in life. Um, it's screened for with um, at birth with the heel prick test, if it's like a genetic cause, for example. Um, hmm. and, um, how's that work? They prick your heel and it, they're looking for a response, a physical one. They, they prick your heel, they take blood and they profile the blood for, um, genetic conditions. And like, they look at okay. the microscope, that kind of thing. Um, so like, it's like, for example, you check the blood and there are no T cells, no signs of like T cells being yeah, made. That's, that's a problem. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that that's one of the, I, I don't know, in some states, like you, you are allowed to refuse the heel prick test at birth, but like people really shouldn't. It, it's really not a good idea. Um, it's just a blood test. It's not like it could harm the infant in any way. Yeah, but like well, people also refuse don't... vitamin K, like, I don't know. Like, yeah, I mean, that, I still don't understand that, but that's intuitively like, that's not just. You're just taking so small amount out, not putting anything in, but whatever. I don't understand a lot of intuitions that a lot of other people have. So, okay, let's move on to the next question. Is is what's up with the adjuvant? There's no adjuvant, right? Like that's why it's not a live virus because you only need adjuvants with live virus vaccines, right? And these aren't that, so they don't require one. So there's no aluminum or anything, which isn't even that. Vaccines um, never require adjuvants because you have like a functional replicating virus with all the signals that 
are needed to tell your immune system that there's an infection going on. So there's a, there's a really, really important reason that we add adjuvants and vaccines. Actually, that was illustrated really mm-hmm. well, actually, with a very recent study on that I'm just going to describe briefly. So in mice, we have um, this model called experimental autoimmune encephalomyelitis, which is meant to represent uh, a few um, neurological autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis and um, neuromyelitis optica. And basically the way it works is they're making an immune response against a protein that's found on their neurons called myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein. So what they did with these mice is they gave them a special RNA vaccine, mRNA vaccine, that is non-inflammatory, that contains the myelin oligodendrocyte glycoprotein, and it works just like a vaccine. And these mice that are genetically predisposed to developing this experimental autoimmune encephalomyelitis, the ones who are vaccinated, none of them got it. And the ones who already had it, once they got the vaccine, their disease improved dramatically. So what, the reason that that's happening there is because if you introduce antigens to the immune system in the absence of an adjuvant, in the absence of something that contributes danger signals, that tells your immune system that that is an antigen that should be tolerated rather than something that you should respond to. So if you imagine getting a vaccine for an infectious disease without any kind of danger signals to go with it, without any adjuvants, that's really bad. That's going to Oh, it's like sending it right in there. It's going to teach your immune system that this virus is going to come in and you're you're not going to do anything for a really long time. And then it's going to replicate our control. Yeah, so (laughs) adjuvants are really, really important. Um, It's not an accident. Like, this isn't arbitrary. Um, Regarding these vaccines, the mRNA vaccines are what's called self-adjuvancing. The mRNA itself is the adjuvant. It's thought that the the fat bubble that comes in has also a weak kind of adjuvant effect because um, if you just inject the naked fat bubble, it causes a little bit of inflammation. Um, so there's no additional adjuvant that you need to add, but the mRNA is the adjuvant, basically. I see. Uh, so, so it's just yeah. not comprised of typical adjuvants that people normally expect from previous vaccines. It's just kind of well, a different way of signaling the threat of the virus so the immune system responds to it. Kind of, but if you think about it, this is the same exact adjuvant that's in any live attenuated viral vaccine. Like this, like the oh. RNA genome of MMR, of the MMR viruses, they all act as adjuvants to promote those immune responses. So like it's oh, a I new see. concept, but it's not that new. You know, we like it's built it's on previous work. Yeah. RNA is one of the best studied molecules in all of biochemistry. I have like five different books on RNA that are each like a thousand pages long, just talking all about what it does. Like it, it's not new. So you wouldn't consider it experimental then, because that's another cause for concern for a lot of people is, oh, this is so new, it's experimental. That's like probably one of the biggest concerns I see. But you're saying that this is like something that we have really, we really understand. We really know what is going on. Yeah, I can understand why people are anxious. Like formally, yes, it's true. There's never been a routinely used mRNA vaccine in humans. But We've given live attenuated vaccines, which are, in general, I would argue, like more cause for concern that we tested and we know are extremely safe. Um, and it works by basically the same exact technology. There's no real issues with it. And despite having given out, I think now, how many is it? I think we're almost up to 20 million doses, which like it's too slow, but hopefully we'll get there. Um, you worldwide know, the only or issue, United States? In the U.S. In the U.S. I'm not in sure how many it's been worldwide. Um, but... The only issue that we seem to be having, which is kind of unavoidable, is anaphylaxis, and that's still incredibly rare. It was two and a half per million doses of Moderna's vaccine and about one in 100,000 for Pfizer's vaccine. And anaphylaxis is treatable, and it presents rapidly after a vaccination, and every single immunization center is prepared to handle it if it should happen. So, Got it. So like, that, that is, not... that's an allergic reaction for anyone that yeah. doesn't know. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's not just an allergic reaction. It's like a really serious kind of allergic reaction that um, usually the things that happen, you, um, it makes it hard to breathe. And it also can cause a dangerous mm-hmm. drop in your blood pressure. But that is what you said, one in 100,000, and it's treatable. One in 100,000 for the Pfizer vaccine, 2.5 per million for the Moderna vaccine. And um, oh, for wow. all vaccines overall, it happens at about 1.3 per million doses for the other routine. Oh, so this vaccine. is also something that is um, in other vaccines, too, which I've, I've seen yeah, in the last I mean, and it, it, a few other ones. It's also yeah, very it's rare. Yeah, unavoidable. Someone like is bound to be allergic to anything, you know, like something. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. But you know, we know how to handle it. It's really, um, it's an expected issue. Everyone who gives the vaccines is prepared to deal with it. It's not really like that big a safety concern. Even if anaphylaxis happens, and even though it's often treated incorrectly, the actual case fatality ratio from anaphylaxis is less than zero point zero zero one percent. It's almost like dying from anaphylaxis is very, very rare. And on top of that, like the treatment is super easy. You just give someone a shot of epinephrine. They might need a second dose in the worst case, but it almost always resolves without issue. It's it's really not like that big a deal. And you compare that to the fatality rate of COVID and it's pretty hard to make a compelling argument that that's a reason to avoid the vaccine. Yeah, um, there was a really good meta-analysis that looked at um, the fatality rate of COVID, and it put it in terms of the annualized risk of a fatal car accident, so like something that's like rare but not that rare. And I yeah. think starting at age thirty, it's at, it starts at two times as likely of dying of COVID as having a fatal car accident in a year. And if you go up to age, um, I think wow. it up to eighty-five, it, that number climbs to one hundred one times higher than their fatal risk of a fatal car accident yeah sometimes i'm um, freaked out about driving too then again it might be my own personal driving but <laughs> yeah we've that, been there that's in- that's interesting to compare that to a real world scenario though because it makes it more salient to think about the threat because normally yeah. you're like oh you know it's it's hard to imagine when there's large figures and you're dealing with population levels so putting it at the individual risk level that's a good way to conceptualize it that's interesting so okay so that, that covers the adjuvant pretty well this is also a very good and common question, and I don't think we know, but what you probably know how far we are in terms of what we can know here. So what is the length and strength of immunity, and how long until we find this out? How does this correlate with herd immunity? Um, what are your thoughts here? Uh, so this is kind of a hard question to answer. Um, looking at mouse studies where we give them the RNA vaccines and we see what kind of cells are produced, it looks like even one dose of the RNA vaccine seems to produce the types of cells that we associate with very long decades to lifelong lived immune responses, uh, which is fantastic news. Uh, we've profiled the antibodies from people who received the Moderna vaccine, and they're very high and stable at least four months out. So it my best guess, these vaccines, the protection of them should be good in terms of the immune response, just considering that for at least five years, it would be really weird oh, nice. me, um, if it was less than that. Nice. The only reason I think they might need to be updated earlier is if there is an important mutation that arises in circulating virus variants that oh. we now need to correct for. Um, but as far as the strength of immunity, depending on which vaccine you look at, the tighter of antibodies you get, is a lot higher than what you see in people who get COVID-19. This was like especially the case for the Novavax vaccine, which is still doing its phase three study. But I think it was something like 10,000 times as much antibody as what we saw in patients who recover from COVID-19 in that one. And for Pfizer and Moderna, it wasn't quite that dramatic, but it was still much higher. 
Um, so I'm not hmm. particularly concerned about the length and strength of immunity. I'm concerned about vaccinating people quickly enough to stop them from being susceptible hosts that can produce a new variant of the virus that can now escape the protection of the vaccine. Um, as far oh, as... Oh, I see. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, as far as herd immunity, that's tricky. Um, so herd immunity, um, you can figure out the threshold if you just know the basic reproduction number of the virus and how effective your vaccine is. Um, but that's tricky. So the basic reproduction number, for anyone who might not be aware, is the average number of people that a person who's infected with the virus is, infected, is expected to pass the infection. So anytime that number is bigger than one, as an outbreak progresses, you expect the number of people who get infected to increase, basically, because each person will pass it to more than one person. If that number is exactly one, it means that the size of the outbreak is going to be stable and um, it's not going to change over time. And if it's less than one, then eventually you're going to bring it down to zero. So the goal of vaccination is basically to force that number to be less than one until the outbreak kind of burns out. Um, the issue is that the value that you get for R will differ from specific outbreak to outbreak. Like for COVID-19, most values put in the range of two to three. There was one paper that I thought was pretty well done, pretty soundly done, that measured it at six. Uh, and that's quite a yeah. big difference in terms of the threshold that we need. Um, for, for something like measles, just to put it in perspective, measles is generally regarded as the most transmissible virus that exists. That number is typically cited as being between 12 and 18. So each person will pass it to oh. at least 12 or 18 people. But I... in I know of one outbreak where someone measured it to be 700, um, which is kind oh. of a crazy thought. Um, what? Yeah. Um, but, you know, we have a really effective vaccine for measles. And as long as enough people take it, it's not an issue. Um, so that's not terribly concerning. Um, I think Dr. Fauci actually kind of screwed the push on his communication about herd immunity, though. So there, there are a few factors that now come into play because if new variants emerge that are spread more easily, that threshold will go up because now they spread more easily. So we need to protect more people to stop, to deplete the possible susceptible hosts. Um, on top of that, the number will change because right now we're kind of uh, relying on other measures in addition to the vaccine to try to control the level of the virus in the, in the community. So we're using masks, hopefully. We're distancing, hopefully. We're not gathering in large groups, hopefully, that sort of thing. If we suddenly take all of that away, that number is going to shoot up. Um, so oh, that, so that's I, the R not with the measures. Yeah, so that that's R measured with all of those things in place. If we want to pin everything on the vaccine, we're going to need as many people as possible to get vaccinated. Um, is the bottom line basically? I see. I see. Okay, interesting. So this is probably another common question. This is probably the most common question tough. actually that I that I find. And we were talking mm -hmm. about this the other day in chat. Yeah. And you sent a you sent a good article that was kind of about this. But how how would you respond to someone who's worried that you know th the vaccines have only been tested for four months, and in terms of long term effects, you know how can we possibly know if five years down the line this doesn't cause you know a third arm to penetrate out of your your septum or something? So what would you what would you say to, to to those concerns because like i can understand why people look at it that way and um yeah i'm curious what you think well yeah i i understand this concern i don't think that this is a crazy idea or an unreasonable concern i think that people just need a, a little bit of education about how vaccines work and how we monitor them so basically like the concept of this long-term effect that arises years after the vaccine is given 
is basically like it doesn't happen it, it has only i only know of literally one example where it happens and it's because of a combination of two very unique factors that don't apply here so i'll just explain that briefly so um the varicella vaccine that we get for chicken pox and for shingles has a weakened varicella virus that is a special strain called the oka strain and very rarely it can um establish an infection inside people and it can be dormant and then reactivate and that can cause shingles so some people can develop shingles from this vaccine years down the line. So why is this happening? Well, it's because of two factors. One, it's because varicella is a herpes virus and they have a special biology that allows them to do that um, just in terms of how they replicate. And the other factor is that this is a live attenuated vaccine. Uh, as There are no live attenuated vaccines that are in phase three trials right now, as far as I'm aware, for COVID-19. And beyond that, SARS-CoV-2 is not a herpes virus. It doesn't have these unique biological quirks that um, we associate with herpes viruses where they can sit there and then reactivate years down the line. If you ever have like any reaction from a vaccine, it will almost always happen within six weeks of that. Um, so in the phase three clinical trials, we wanted a median of two months of data because that is a very reliable window in which you can profile vaccine reactions. That doesn't mean that after those two months, we're all good, we stop. There is actually a very extensive pharmacovigilance network that monitors the safety of vaccines constantly. Um, so for one thing, if you receive a vaccine against COVID-19, you can get an app on your phone called Be Safe, and every single day it will text you with updates, asking how you are, reporting your symptoms, that kind of thing. There's also a passive surveillance system like the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting Service, which people can report mm -hmm. to. That is um, more used um, to initiate investigations rather than itself like to conduct them. And on right, top of that, right. there are active surveillance systems like uh, the vaccine safety data link, where someone is constantly looking through anonymized patient data to see about any potential health issues that may arise following um, the receipt of the vaccine and uh, recommendations can be adjusted accordingly. So for example, um, the first generation rotavirus vaccines, they went through clinical trials, everything looked okay. And then there were about 10 VAERS reports filed that uh, showed that reported um, into susception, which is where like the bowel kind of telescopes over itself, and that can be really dangerous. Um, but it was still really rare, so it was missed in the clinical trials. And um, after it was investigated, it was determined that this was a real risk, and the vaccine was taken off the market because it was decided that this rare but real risk outweighed the potential benefits. And then we got a new virus, a uh, new rotavirus vaccine, excuse me, that um, doesn't really carry these risks anymore. I think like it's not, it's still not quite at zero, but it's like. I don't know if it can be accurately quantified. It's too rare. Okay, so so there's history where the the long term effects of vaccines, you know, they're not really a problem except for this one circumstance. But just to get the concerns addressed fully, um, how how do you integrate the fact that this vaccine is new technology along with the risk of long term side effects? Because the previous vaccines, if if there's no risk long term with those, but this is a new one, I can see why the concern is on this one. So why is the MNRA vaccine specifically, or maybe also the Oxford one, um, predicated with the same variables that apply to those previous vaccines? Well, so the Oxford and Johnson & Johnson vaccines aren't really new technology. We already have an Ebola vaccine, which is basically 100% effective that works by this exact technology, and we know it's safe. Um, the only difference is mm. the um, Ebola vaccine uses a different vector. So Ebola vaccine uses a vesicular stomatitis virus vector instead of um, adenoviruses, which I personally think are better, but that's a different discussion. Um, as for the mRNA vaccines, we can literally see like how long, like mRNA 
is basically like a Snapchat message for yourself. It really doesn't last long. It's um, under normal circumstances, it's gone after a few hours. These RNAs have been modified slightly so that they can last long enough that you can reliably make enough spike proteins to have a good immune response. So they're gone after a day, maybe two, and you can actually like watch this um, by uh doing like studies in experimental animals ah. where you make the rna like for example encode a fluorescent protein and you can watch how long it's like the fluorescent protein shows up and how long it stays there and that can be like a proxy measure for the lifetime of the rna inside the cell so rna like itself it, it's very very short-lived like any potential for it to cause any issues is basically negligible um i think the the real risk with any vaccine is the immune response that it initiates and the clinical trials have already shown that even though these vaccines cause unpleasant side effects, that they are clearly much safer than COVID-19. I see. So so there's no there's no mechanism by which a long term effect could substantiate itself through this vaccine um, because you can, can actually watch the short term effects there. Yeah, just, there's nothing I, can I like the Snapchat reference. Yeah, I, mean, I, uh, I think Shane Crotty was the first one to, to bring that up. He's a vaccine scientist. Um, and I think that's a really good way to explain it. Um, and like I said, it's new, but it's not that new, right? Because this is basically how any live attenuated virus vaccine works. Um, it's the same idea, except we just don't make a functional virus at the end. We just make one protein. I see. So it's just like a simplified version of something that has a very long track record of efficacy and safety. So yeah, that's a lot good. of attenuated that's virus good. vaccines are actually our oldest vaccines, the smallpox vaccine that like we got by like literally like scraping people's lesions and putting them on people. That's basically a live attenuated <laughs> virus. Um, and we've been doing that since the 18th century. Uh, so I don't know. A lot of people are worried about like the novelty. I don't really share that concern. I understand why people have it, but you know, I think I next to the risk well, of COVID-19, it's relevant. That, that makes a lot of sense. And that really covers the, the grounds for that question. So I think you kind of answered this one earlier, but I'll just ask you anyway, just to cover all the grounds here. So can mutations in COVID change the efficacy of the vaccine? And I think you said yes. And that's why you want people to be vaccinated as fast as possible so that that doesn't yeah. happen, right? Yeah, um, this is really a problem. So um, the vaccine targets just the spike protein. And unfortunately, we know that coronavirus spike proteins mutate. But the reason that we chose the spike protein as a target is because we know that if we make antibodies against the spike protein, the virus can't get into our cells anymore, can't cause damage, can't cause disease. So it is probably the best target. But it's a problem that this is also part of a virus that is known to mutate and change. So um, right now, there is one particularly concerning mutation called E484K, which is E, um, which is, hang on, acid amino acid, one letter codes, uh, glutamate, um, to lysine changes. Um, the 484th amino acid changes from a glutamate to a lysine. And um, this seems to really inhibit the ability of antibodies to bind to the spike protein, unfortunately, um, at least when you look at people who have been infected with COVID-19 before. So that's kind of a problem. That doesn't necessarily mean that the vaccine won't work or won't be helpful against it, because in addition to antibodies, the vaccines will elicit T-cell responses. And between those two things, you should probably at least have some protection. You might be able to get infected and have like a mild illness, for example, but they should still keep you safe from at least severe COVID-19. But at the end of the day, as long as this virus has new people to infect, it's going to get mutations. And eventually one of those mutations could be one that escapes the protection of the vaccine. So we need to figure out a way to get rid of all the susceptible hosts for, for this virus as quickly as possible before that happens. Interesting. Okay, that that makes sense to me. That That's good. So I guess this kind of 
actually follows up pretty nicely from that. So uh, the way this was worded was funny. They actually said, am I putting the human collective at risk by refusing the vaccine? I just changed it to others because I thought it was worded very funny. But what what do you what do you think about that? Um, I, I mean, to put it bluntly, I, I think so. So I think that this is tied to that question of whether or not the vaccine can prevent transmission. So this is kind of a complex um, discussion because I, I think that um, the science communication on this has kind of been a little bit messed up. So the trials were not set up to assess whether or not people who got the vaccine can then transmit virus or can then be infected. In general, we don't make vaccines that are intended to block infection because that's almost impossible to do. The only real vaccine or even it doesn't really even happen with infections is the only example I know of where it reliably happens is the HPV vaccine. And that's just because it produces such a ridiculously high number of antibodies that the virus just never gets a chance to get into your cells. Um, so the thing is that mm. that standard, which is called sterilizing immunity, isn't a reasonable or even a necessary standard for any vaccine. Most vaccines reliably do allow you to become infected, but that infection is typically something that's either so short-lived um, or um, so, and usually asymptomatic that you don't really get an opportunity to spread it to anyone, and it doesn't really get a chance to mutate and escape the vaccine. Uh, right, because so, you have to be infected with it to elicit an immune response in the first place, right? Like, I, I couldn't see how it could completely stop you from getting infected other than the the example you gave with the with the high number of, ridiculously high number of antibodies. Yeah. Um, so I think that somewhere along the lines, people decide that we need sterilized immunity if we want to block transmission. And that's really not the case. Um, so the question is, um, do, do these vaccines interrupt transmission? And there are some clues that we have that suggest that they do, but we don't know quite how well they do it. So Moderna actually looked at asymptomatic cases um, in their trial. They, there's like a little short supplement in the documents that they submitted to the vaccines and related biological products advisory committee, which is like the committee of experts that like actually goes through and assesses it and makes a recommendation to the FDA about whether or not to approve um, the vaccine for emergency use authorization, that sort of thing. And it showed that after just one dose, people were um, three times less likely to have a positive PCR result on their um, on their uh to have a positive PCR result after they were vaccinated with just one dose. So that's one dose. We don't really know yet what ah. two doses do. Um, but that's an encouraging sign. Um, and also, again, just to remind people, these are these trials are double-blind and randomized. And Pfizer doesn't know if the person they're doing the PCR on has gotten the vaccine. Neither do the participants. No one knows. The only people who know that, um, well, actually, no one knows in the beginning that that data is blinded, and then you have to break the blind, and that's like a whole crazy process. Um that usually will only occur in the middle of a trial if something really bad happens and you need to see if they got a vaccine or not. Um, but basically, so um, to summarize, that, that was a lot of words. <laughs> to summarize, um, there are some hints from Moderna's trial that the vaccine does seem to be able to stop transmission. Um, I would expect that uh, most likely people can become infected with SARS-CoV-2, but that infection is too short-lived in vaccinated individuals to be able to meaningfully spread to other people. But you will, it, will still take some, it will still take some time before the level of vaccine individuals rises to a point that we can abandon other non-pharmaceutical interventions like masking, distancing, that sort of thing. So unfortunately, even after two weeks of passing the second dose, we will still need to keep wearing masks at least for a little while. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's, that's pretty good for the basics, I think. Covers like the background of the COVID-19 vaccine. I want to segue into some very common questions I hear a lot that aren't necessarily covering the basics, but I hear these quite often. And 
most of these are again taken from my comment section so mm-hmm. we'll transition into these i see these all the time and you probably have too so here we go this one's pretty common don't we have natural antibodies in our system we can use to fight this disease um go ahead just go ahead <laughs> do you want the simple answer or do you want the complicated immunology answer uh can you give me the simple answer and then we'll see <laughs> okay well the simple answer is no um the complicated immunology answer is yes but actually no with the long discussion of how antibodies are made okay um can you make that short can you summarize that so cuz how could we my thinking is how do we have natural antibodies for a disease we haven't been exposed to yet? Um, but that's just my intuition. You have antibodies against antigens that not only you have not been exposed to, but things that you can never, ever even theoretically be exposed to. Because the way that antibodies are made is your B cells are deliberately randomly introducing mutations into that region of the genome that codes for an antibody. And you just get like constant random recombination, basically. And <laughs> it's a trial and error system that um, goes and like, checks for something that works eventually you get lucky and you get the thing that works and that b-cell gets told to multiply and make a billion copies of itself to get rid of the infection but the point is interesting the point is if you get a vaccine you do that whole process before you've gotten a chance to get sick if you get sick and if you get infected with SARS-CoV-2 it's going to replicate cause disease and your b-cells are going to figure out how to do this in the middle of an infection which is not ideal and you can just give them the instructions beforehand and say, hey, yeah. here's what you're going to experience. Get ready. I see. Okay. So that's very interesting. I did not expect that answer, but I asked. Whoever put that, thank you. Okay. Let's go to the next one. Um, this is kind of, some of these are kind of repeats from the background ones, but yeah. that's good. We have a basis to answer them. So isn't <laughs> this vaccine rushed? How do we know how it reacts with the body? Um Especially emphasizing the rushed part seems to be a concern. Yeah, um, I understand why people think that because it, it, it's true that this is like a really, really fast um, timeline for getting a vaccine because it was it took less than a year. Um, but that doesn't really reflect that like we rushed to do it. It more reflects that we had uh, a lot of things come together that took out a lot of the things that slow the process of normally making a vaccine. So one of the issues was financial reasons. So Operation Warp Speed provided all these companies with a ton of money so that they could um, didn't have to worry about raising up the funds to do their studies. Um, another factor was that it, it's it, even for a very small trial, it can be very hard to recruit people. And uh, in this case, that wasn't an issue. They were able to recruit tens of thousands of people really, really quickly. Everyone really wanted this vaccine. Um, the other factor there that's related to that is the attack rate of COVID-19 in the communities that the vaccine was being trialed in was really, really high. So you didn't have to wait very long to see whether or not the vaccine could prevent COVID-19. And on top of that, there were some mm. slight modifications made to the way that the clinical trial process works. So for, for anyone who's not aware, a lot of the clinical trial process involves having a giant stack of papers that sit in a room for months that no one looks at for months, that then go to a secretary's desk where they sit on her desk for months or his desk, I guess. Um <laughs> And then finally, the right person at the FDA or whoever will look at it and then make a decision about whether or not the um, the clinical trial can progress into the next phase and so on. So the FDA said, like, because it's a public health emergency, we're going to allow seamless trials, which basically means that as soon as you have data for your trial, if it met its endpoint that was set. So, like, for example, um, for these trials, they had to be able to prevent COVID-19 
at least 50% of the time with the vaccine. Um, and the lower limit of efficacy was set at 30%. So it could not be less than 30% effective uh, at preventing COVID-19. So anyway, um, as soon as the vaccine was shown to meet that criteria, it was allowed to petition for uh, emergency use authorization. So it was really just like we sped up all the parts that could be sped up and we pushed everything that wasn't COVID related to the back of the line. And we had financial resources come together. We had a pandemic that made people really willing volunteers. Um, and we had, uh, because the pandemic was out of control, we were able to get all the cases that we needed really quickly to see the difference. Like there were eight cases of COVID-19 in the Pfizer trial among people who were vaccinated and 162 in that same period for those who were unvaccinated. Like that is clearly a vaccine that prevents COVID-19, you know? Can you say that one one more time? Yeah, so I, I think it was the Pfizer trial. In the Pfizer trial, they looked at 170 cases of COVID-19. 162 of them were in unvaccinated people, and eight of them were in vaccinated people. Like oh, that is for the same population yeah. control groups. Yeah, same number of people. Yeah, yeah that sounds yeah. like it works pretty well. Yeah, it's it's really effective. Um, that's how so you all of this worked together. Number. Yeah, everything God, everything yeah. quite literally came together. Um, and I'm just hoping it was enough because, I mean, the virus is mutating and, like, we need to get these vaccines in people's arms. That's the bottom line. As for how we know it reacts with how it reacts to the body, um, I mean, that's what the whole clinical trial process was, right? We tested it. We tested it in 44,000 people in the Pfizer trial and in 30,000 people in the Moderna trial. And we've now given it to millions of people um, around the country and many more around the world. And there are still no significant safety issues noted, again, other than anaphylaxis, which we are prepared to deal with and is kind of unavoidable. Very interesting. Yeah, you are you are very convincing here because I, I haven't really fully made up my mind, at least before this interview about the COVID vaccine, just because I have really been negligent on my research on it. But um, you're more convincing than pretty much everyone I've talked to. So so this is good. This is good because I have a lot of these questions I've, I also wonder myself. So, I think they're reasonable questions that for anyone to have. I don't blame people for wondering them. Yeah, I don't I don't either. I don't either. And I think it's it I'm glad you're answering them because sometimes it's hard to find a good resource to get them all answered at least in one place. So, so I get this one a lot too. I'm hmm. thinking the answer is yes, but that's the point, but not necessarily DNA specifically, but We're talking about this is, SARS-CoV-2 or are we talking about one of the vaccines here? Uh yes, COVID, the disease. Oh. They're yeah. Okay, um, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, it doesn't really affect your DNA. Um, coronaviruses are RNA viruses. Their entire replication cycle happens inside the cytoplasm, and your DNA is inside this special compartment called the nucleus, which is separate from that. There isn't really any possibility they can affect your DNA. There was a study, um, or rather a preprint, I guess, um, that was very poorly done, that claimed that they had evidence that SARS-CoV-2, which is the virus that causes COVID-19, was reverse transcribing into our cells. And um, that's where the RNA gets converted to a DNA template and that DNA um, is then shoved inside our nucleus. And then our cells keep making like proteins from SARS-CoV-2 and everything. Um, that is, the point of that though, is that study was absolutely terrible. Um, they don't seem to understand the method that they're using because the method that they're using is going to give you, like basically they said that this is happening because you have sequences that are like hybrids of human DNA and also DNA that would be from SARS-CoV-2. But that's literally what the technique they use does. Like, that's that's how it works. It, it makes, like, a bunch of oh. DNA copies of whatever RNA is inside the cell. So if you, you have, if you have a cell that's infected with SARS-CoV-2 and it has SARS-CoV-2 RNA and also has human RNA because it's a human cell, like, you're going to get hybrids. Like, uh, So it's just, like, it's obvious. 
Yeah, no, not actually um, there's definitely anything. no evidence that it manipulates your DNA. We don't understand really what's happening with long COVID, um, which is a problem. There are a lot of ideas there um, that don't involve the DNA. And basically, it's looking like COVID-19 might cause some people to develop really complex autoimmune diseases um, in some cases. The other possibility is that the virus or fragments of the virus are hiding in parts of the body that the immune system can't really reach and then are being uh, released out at some point and triggering symptoms again. But we don't really know oh, at this God. point. So for the vaccine, does let's ask the question for the vaccine. Does the vaccine manipulate human DNA? Um, and I guess go with the mRNA vaccine. Um, this would violate every single thing that we know about cell biology if it did. Like, I, I'm not even exaggerating. <laughs> like, like, um, just like as, as a thought experiment... Imagine all that we needed to do to change DNA was to give the right mRNA sequence. Like, think about what that would mean for genetic diseases. Like, why would we have any of them? We could just, like, just do this, you know? And, like, there are... Yeah, we could update our DNA quickly. Right, yeah. And there are RNA-based therapies now. Actually, that's another thing. There are RNA therapies that have, like, full licensure from the FDA. So, again, like, this isn't, like, totally new technology. This isn't crazy. Um, But they have to be given continuously because like i said rna doesn't last long inside the cell it has to continuously be remade um or in in the case of um yeah or in the case of rna therapies you have to keep giving it to them or it doesn't fix anything okay okay interesting so neither then the virus nor the vaccine good okay so this one (laughs) this one's also very common why are you even bothering with a 99 point nine seven percent survival rate i don't think that number is accurate first off but that's this is the question yeah, that i get I, i'm guessing <laughs> that number is taken by looking at the entire population of the u.s and seeing what proportion of them has died of COVID 19 which is not how you compute a survival rate because the relevant denominator there is out of people who get infected or people who develop symptomatic disease uh, not people um, who don't get infected with it because yeah why would they yeah. be included yeah, so I mean, four hundred thousand people have died of COVID nineteen since the pandemic started in the U.S., and that is about one in eight hundred people in the U.S. Um, and that is nowhere close to infecting everybody. In like some of the hardest hit areas, like in New York City, it the zero surveys say about twenty percent of the population got hit, and most places aren't like anywhere close to that. So the most conservative, reasonable estimates I've seen. For the fatality rate for COVID-19 is 0.6%, which makes it six times as fatal as the seasonal flu. Um, and actually, oh, if yeah. At, um, yeah. Um, if you look at the flu deaths each year causes, um, it depends on the flu season, a bad flu season, you typically see about 60,000 deaths. And um, milder ones, you'll see like around 15,000. If you compare the number of deaths that we've had from COVID-19 to the number of deaths we've had from seasonal flu, and it is more than what we've had in the last 10 years. And it has not been a full Already? year. Really. Yeah. And it has not been a full year of this pandemic yet. Um, Whoa, I have despite, not heard that stat yet. Yeah. And this That's is despite mitigation measures. This is despite everything that we've done to try to win it spread. <laughs> Which are not and, taking place during the flu. Yeah, we don't. We don't. During flu seasons. Mask, right? Yeah. Uh, COVID-19 spreads much more easily than the flu. That's why. Actually, if you look at the incidence of flu, it's basically like gone. Uh, and that's because people are masking, people are distancing, all these things, they affect every respiratory Oh, because everyone has been saying that, yeah, you know, the flu's gone. Where'd it go? Oh, it's actually just COVID. No. And they're just saying the flu is COVID. And, you know, I just figured the flu is still around is what I thought. I was like, it's not. It's people the, the are still getting the flu. Around. 
the flu is still around, but like its activity is so low. I haven't even looked at it. I don't know if there have even been a thousand cases this year. I'm, I mean, I imagine there, there would have to be like a thousand, but um, it's it's really That's rare so right now um, because like all of our mitigation measures. Yeah. Um, so the the most conservative estimate I've seen is that overall, like across all age groups, across all risk factors, case fatality ratio is zero point six percent. Um, that number is I think it's likely an underestimate because most of the experts agree that we are undercounting our COVID-19 fatalities, but it's hard to say because we are also probably undercounting our infections. We don't know the exact ratio there. But in so far as right. Um but in so far as this thing in less than a year has killed more people than 10 years of flu have, including some really, really bad flu pandemics. Like this is not a joke. This is not something with a 99.7% survival rate. And on top of that, I mean, like, I, what I don't get is, like, the assumption, in, in effect, that the people who die, they don't matter. Because, like, if you're young and healthy, like, your odds of dying from this, yeah, they're pretty low. But what about your grandparents, right? Like, if you're 85 or older, your risk of death from COVID-19 is about 30%. Like, is that really fair, like, to say, like, that that doesn't right. matter? And um, the other thing that I don't like about this question is it doesn't consider morbidity. Because we know that a huge proportion of patients do get long-term symptoms from this. They are, they get, um, it really oh, affects their quality right. of life. They, they, they don't die. They don't die, but they get like random fevers. Some of them develop new autoimmune diseases. Some people have developed diabetes after COVID-19. Lung which problems. Lung problems or heart arrhythmias, um, myocarditis. Um, I have a friend who's a cardiologist. She saw someone with like really, really crazy heart complications. They were like in their thirties and a marathon runner. Like it's just, it's, it's really terrible. So what do you think about using, um, previous year's deaths and comparing them to this year's deaths and the accurate number i'm pretty sure is like there's many more deaths this year than previous years but yeah if the flu is less than it is than previous years how accurate is that to estimate the fatality rate of covid or, or do you usually use other measures to well calculate i think that what you're talking about now is like i think what you're talking about now is excess mortality so like in a given year we know how many people we expect to die and we can like yes. map the deaths of this year over that year. And that's how we can see that a lot more people are dying this year than is normal. But for the yes. fatality ratio, um, they look at number of infections and number of people who have died. Got it, got it. So they, they kind of correlate a little bit, but and yeah, one the, is still evidence the, for the other. Right. So they think that because the excess mortality is higher than what we've measured in terms of our fatality rates and like number of deaths it's probable that we're undercounting um, the number of people who've died from COVID-19. Wow, that's interesting, because I often see it's overcounted. You know, it's a very common common belief. So, you know, okay. I hear that too. But, you know, the thing about that, though, is if it's overcounted, then that means that the number of cases we have are less, and that means that the number of people who are dying as a ratio is higher. So it's a more lethal disease if we're overcounting cases. So neither option is good, basically. It's more lethal if we're overcounting? Wait, how? If we're, if we're overcounting cases, then the actual denominator of the number of people who are infected is smaller, which means the ratio of deaths to cases is a bigger number. Oh. oh wow, I've never looked at it like that. That's yeah, interesting. so neither scenario is a good thing. Like, I don't really know. Like, <laughs> right, like it's a slam dunk or something. <laughs> Like, it's not a big deal. We don't like if we're overcounting the cases, then it's a much more lethal disease than even we think it is. Like, I don't gotcha. know. That makes sense. So, so where would people find the research that this vaccine actually prevents one from getting COVID 19? That would just be what you mentioned earlier, right? The trial studies where they found, you know, yeah, the un- unvaccinated population, it's just way higher case rate. 
Yeah, um, if you Google, like, FDA vaccine VRD PAC documents, like, actually, I'll pull it up right now, and I'll share my screen. All right, so oh. this thing, FDA, right, this is the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee. Um, you can look, uh, let's see. Here's the meeting from December 17th. This was for Moderna. You can watch the entire meeting. Like, it's, like, it's eight hours and nine minutes long if you want to do that and you want to see, like, the, vac the pharmaceutical companies get grilled about every little data point. I don't know if that makes you happy. <laughs> um, and um, then you have the actual material. So this is, like, the FDA's summary document, right? So this is what the um, – well, they get all the documents, but this is, like, the really important one to read. And it tells you what everything is. It tells you what an adverse event is. It tells you all the acronyms. Um, and then it gives you, like, an executive summary of everything that happened in the trial. And then let me skip ahead to the, like the efficacy part. Uh, okay, here's vaccine efficacy. So these are cases of COVID-19 in the placebo group, and these are the cases of COVID-19 in the vaccine group. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Looks like I want to be in the group that is in red. And again, like there's really no way that the pharmaceutical company could produce these results and like cheat because they don't know who gets the vaccine. Right, that's that's what double blind means, right? Yeah, they don't control that. And like even on um, even in terms of the data analysis, like that's not even the pharmaceutical company. They're not allowed to look at that. There's a separate data safety monitoring board, which is made up of an independent body of experts that are not affiliated with the pharmaceutical company and also not affiliated with the FDA. <clears throat> and they're the ones who do all the statistical analysis. They're the ones who decide whether or not the vaccine is met at end point. Um so like the pharmaceutical company basically it, it coughs up the money and like it does the study but they have very little control over what actually happens after that. I see. So when people talk about uh, Pfizer's criminal history or, you know, whatever, all the, all that, when people bring that, that kind of thing, they can't actually manipulate this result if they wanted to, if they actually wanted to, you know, cheat people out I, of a good vaccine. I can't think of a way they could do their um, reputation for one. Yeah, uh, that's the other thing. Like, this is like the most heavily scrutinized pharmaceutical product that's been made in like all of history. This is not the time for a vaccine company to try to like defraud the people. You know, like it's just like yeah, it, it that sounds like a great way um, to yeah, right, right, like um, ruin your business there. But right. you know, like if you have misgivings with Pfizer's vaccine, then like go get Moderna's or go get like some other vaccine. Like I don't know, like it doesn't matter. We have options. Like. Right. It's not like there's only one. And, and yeah. do you think the Oxford one will be approved here for people who maybe just MNRA is just freaks them out for some reason? Um, do you think it yeah. will get approved here? Oxford's will probably be approved. I don't know how long that will take because we need like a normal clinical trial data set from them. Um, also, like mm -hmm. I just went to um, Pfizer's data. So like this is Pfizer's vaccine. Again, eight hours and 41 minutes meeting where they get grilled by these experts. Um, and... Then if you scroll all the way to the bottom, this is their FDA briefing document. And let me get you the graph for Pfizer's. Oh, there it is. This is Pfizer's vaccine. This is the unvaccinated group, and this is the vaccinated group. Wow, it looks very similar to the last graph. Yeah, so like this is the thing. Like It's really nice when you have data and that it doesn't take a statistician to tell you whether or not the therapy works. Right, because you can just look right at this chart and see this, this yeah. vaccine is effective for what it claims to be effective for. Yep. Gotcha. Very cool. Okay, so that is where to find the research right there. You just saw it for yourself. So that is the best answer I could have asked for. Awesome. So that's that. So this one is up your alley because you're writing a post about this right now.
Yeah. What can this vaccine do that vitamin D cannot? So um, you are writing a post about vitamin D right now, which yeah, hopefully I, I can see later. This is a common one. So feel free to get headache. into it. This, this post is giving me <laughs> such a headache because vitamin D does like a million things in the body. And then when you try to give it as a supplement, it turns out to be basically useless. Like every really? single, basically every single time. We, yes, I'm. I'm not even kidding. Um, it's been tried. So I shouldn't take my vitamin D pills. I'm not. I need I, to go outside. No, uh, right, um, right. Don't want to give. A, <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Um, <laughs> so first of all, vitamin D deficiency is much rarer than people think it is. Um, there is a um the the ranges for normal vitamin D levels set by the Endocrine Society are probably wrong. Um, because people with levels of vitamin D that are lower than that don't seem to have any apparent disease. Um, and also hmm. there is one particular actor in that um, who was part of that decision who has a financial conflict of interest. Basically, he gets money from diagnostic screening of vitamin D levels. Um, so if he is able to show that there is indeed an epidemic of everyone having low vitamin D, he directly profits from that. Um, that is so, a conflict. Wow. Yeah. Um, so the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, for example, does not use those ranges. Their ranges are um, lower for like uh, the minimum normal value. But the Institute of Medicine did an analysis in 2011 and found that in the U.S. between the food fortifications, like certain foods have small amounts of vitamin D added to them to prevent deficiency and uh, what people would get from sunlight exposure. And 97.5% of the U.S. has enough vitamin D that they're not at risk for any kind of deficiency. Um, but beyond that, um, when you try supplementing with wow. vitamin D, like the, the big thing that people supplement vitamin D for a lot of the time is for, uh, for one thing, osteoporosis and in randomized controlled trials, it doesn't have any effect. I know of one trial where it actually seemed to make things worse and provoke more falls in postmenopausal women. Um, and the other thing they seem to want like it for is seasonal affective disorder. Um, there aren't really a lot of trials on that, but of the ones I've seen, um, they're all negative. They don't show any effects from vitamin D supplementation, um, which is unfortunate because, I mean, it's a real problem. And, like, yeah. it's not a bad hypothesis yeah. that, like, you would get sick when... That would um, help with that. Yeah. Or not sick, um, depressed when there's less sunlight. Like, it's not, it's not like, an unreasonable thought that vitamin D would be the reason for that. Um, but also, That's like... a good um, hypothesis. Yeah, I, I think it, would, it was reasonable to check, but it didn't seem to help. But um, then you get to, like, respiratory infections where, like, in people who have very severe vitamin D deficiency, like at like a, a very, like a level that is very unusually low, that like almost no one has, when you supplement, it does seem to have a significant protective effect against upper respiratory infection, but that level of deficiency is incredibly rare. So I, oh, like, yeah. Um, so it's not, I see. With COVID 19, there are a bunch of studies that are like, look, these people have COVID 19. And they're more likely to have COVID-19 if their vitamin D levels are lower. But you're also more likely to have COVID-19 if you're elderly, if you are an essential worker, if you are a person of color. And all of those people um, tend to have vitamin D deficiency uh, and tend to be at high risk for COVID-19 for reasons that have nothing to do with their vitamin D levels. Like um, the elderly, a lot of them are in long-term care facilities and like they're crowded, like COVID-19 has an easy time spreading there. Uh, essential workers tend to be people with lower income levels. They tend um to be people of color people of color have lower levels of vitamin d um it's thought because their skin pigment blocks their ability to make it but they also have higher levels of free vitamin d in their blood so they don't develop like the calcium metabolism issues that you would associate with low vitamin d um oh so, so it like, counteracts for it already yeah um so 
I think it's kind of a nothing burger. I mean, vitamin D supplementation is generally safe for most people um, at reasonable doses. So like, if people want to and like they've cleared it with their care team, I think that's fine. It's not safe for everyone, though. Like if you have sarcoidosis, for example, any level of vitamin D deficiency can be potentially dangerous. Um, so don't just like initiate a supplement randomly before you talk to your care team. Um, but gotcha. in short, what can this vaccine do that vitamin D cannot? The answer is prevent COVID-19. <laughs> so all right so vitamin d the deficiency is very rare so and, and even if you have the deficiency it's not going to be enough to stop covid19 infection considering most people who are infected with covid19 they have sufficient levels of vitamin d right yeah like and they're still infected true vitamin d deficiency is pretty rare yeah there's a lot gotcha, of controversy so. about, like, what the right level of vitamin d is in the blood um, but but most people who are infected already have that level that they need. Yeah, so you're not really going to see much regardless. deficiency in like a high income nation like the U.S. Um, it, it's very, it's pretty rare. Gotcha. Okay, cool, cool. So I will think about the vitamin D supplement. I live in Ohio, so it's kind of like hard to go outside all the time with the snow, and it's always dark at like six. So I'm like, oh, I'm probably deficient in vitamin D, but I go outside pretty often, so I must not be actually. That's you save ten bucks a month. Thank you very much. Okay, I mean, so... I, wouldn't, I wouldn't stop it if you've been taking it without like talking to your care team first, because like I, I don't know what your vitamin D levels are or anything like that. But oh I'm just right, saying, like, right. Sh- I'm saying people should not take vitamin <laughs> D, expecting that it protects them from COVID nineteen. It might have a gotcha. modest amount of it. Like there, there are like pretty universal recommendations that infants who are exclusively breastfed and the elderly should supplement with vitamin D, uh, because those two groups don't get enough of it. But for everyone else, it's like it's less clear. Gotcha. Okay, so that that's good. That's good. So for for this next question, this is kind of like a this could be a rabbit hole. So let's try to make maybe try to make it brief because we can yeah. talk about this one for about an hour. But quickly, yeah. is the vaccine safe and effective? Because if it was safe and effective, manufacturers would be held liable. Which you know, just so everyone knows, that is. There's nothing new with the COVID-19 vaccine and its liability. This is the same for all vaccines, right? It's not like it's, this is a new concept. Let's see. Can you hear me okay? I have to like switch microphones. Yeah, no, you're fine. Okay. Um, It's a little bit different for the COVID-19 vaccine because we have a public health emergency. So under, um, under the other vaccines are covered by the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program as far as liability. And then if you don't like their decision, you can appeal it in civil court and sue the pharmaceutical company directly, which, I mean, is probably not going to go well for you because they have really expensive, powerful High lawyers. burden of proof. Yeah. Um, but I'm not actually a fan of this because uh, under the PrEP Act, they don't really have enough funding, I think, to really compensate people well. So I'm hopeful that they will eventually transition COVID vaccines to um, the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. Um, mm-hmm. and um, th- But the reason that this is the case, so basically in the 1980s, you had a bunch of political, I, I guess they're political action group. I'm not sure what to call them. Parent activist groups, we'll call them. And they were okay. really mad at the manufacturers of pertussis vaccines because they claimed that the pertussis vaccines caused encephalopathy in their kids. Um, and they tried to sue them. And eventually the, pharma- the pharmaceutical companies kept like defending these lawsuits in court paying their super expensive lawyers and they like looked at the numbers and they're like, you know what? It's honestly not worth making these pertussis vaccines because the money that we're spending on these lawsuits is less than the profit that we gained from them. So we're going to stop making them all together. So if you can imagine oh. like, um, That's if we good. stop making pertussis vaccines, like what's going to happen to pertussis? Like, right. You know? 
Right. Um, so, so at that point, the government stepped in, and so did actually um, one one of the um, more famous um, anti-vaccine activists, Barbara Will Fisher, who runs the National Vaccine Information Center. She actually helped write the law that made the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. So basically, the point of this is you have a lower burden of proof. Um, people are compensated through an excise tax that's paid for um, by, by buying the vaccines. Uh, and basically all you need to show in vaccine court is that there is a plausible connection between what happens to you and what the vaccine does. Like, um, it's, it's a very low bar. Um, and despite that, um, it's been around since 1986 and about 6,000 people have been compensated in that time, but the rewards are like pretty sizable. It's like on average, it's about like $750,000, um, per, so, per reward, which is why it's 4 yeah. billion. And that seems like a lot, but 7,000 out of millions of administered vaccines is like what 0.001% of, of injuries rewarded yeah. that don't even prove that the vaccine caused actual injury right. because it's such a low burden of proof. Yeah. So it's about 6,000 people total that have been compensated and that's out of literally billions of doses. That's about one per million. And I mean, a lot of, of people, doses. yeah. So a lot of people will cite like that these uh, injuries are underreported, um, but any serious adverse event, any table injury, like there's literally like a table of um, adverse events after immunization, the healthcare team is mandated by law to report them. Um, so I can't really conceive of any significant underreporting in that respect. Um, with the COVID vaccines, we know that like one in about 100,000 people who get the Pfizer vaccine will have anaphylaxis, and that will probably be something that can be compensated. Um, so it'll be higher for them, but still like it's not really proof uh, in any way that the vaccines are unsafe uh, or ineffective it's just that like if we didn't have this then pharmaceutical companies would have decided not to make vaccines and that would be a public health catastrophe gotcha gotcha and they even and vaccine court even pays your lawyer fees you know there there are a lot of benefits to the actual vac vaccine court itself compared to civil court in which you would not be seeing very many payouts so so this yeah. applies you, to the you covid-19 vaccine too right right Sorry, but so can, I know you can sue the manufacturers for other vaccines directly um, after you've gone through vaccine court, but is that the same for the COVID-19 vaccine? Can you, can you I'm sue not, the manufacturers I'm not sure in the of, same I'm way? I'm not sure about the legal aspects of it. Um, I'd have right. to ask I It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Because um, you're not going to win anyway in civil court. Good luck. If I you mean, do, congrats. Like, if you think about it, like, it's nobody's fault if you react badly to a pharmaceutical, right? Like, unless you can show that, like, someone knew that this was going to be bad for you in advance and they gave it to you anyway, and especially, like, you didn't <laughs> speak up or whatever. Like, there isn't really any case you can make that, like, the it's the pharmaceutical company's fault. You know, like, they, they can't control how you react to their product. It's just, like, at a certain point, like, there's a certain level of risk that we can't avoid. Right. Gotcha. And that's been around for 30 years, the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. And it is 30, only 35. 30, yes, 35. Yeah. For 6,000 payouts. It, people just exaggerate. They say, oh, $4 billion have been paid out. And it just sounds like a big number. And it sounds scary. And it's kind of disingenuous also, when you're not oh, giving the rest also, of the information. Also, um, more than half of those payouts are because of shoulder injury related to vaccine administration. So this is basically like if you get the vaccine oh. too high up, um, it can cause an inflammatory response in the bursa of the shoulder. And that's like really painful and uncomfortable. It can be pretty debilitating. So it's definitely worth compensation. That's not what I'm saying. But the point is like, it's not the vaccine's fault. It's the result of bad injection right. technique. Um, and it's probably so, not also going to be lethal either. No, it's definitely not. It, it can be really uncomfortable and painful, but um, it's definitely not lethal. 
Gotcha. Okay, I think I think that covers vaccine court sufficiently. We could talk about that for an hour, but if people want to look more into what we've said, do some digging. So we've only got a few more, but let's let's finish them off. And then I have a few joke questions for you that I thought were pretty funny. So we'll, we'll finish with those. Um, a lot of people are wondering this. When will we know, do you think, because, you know, what would you guess when the vaccine can stop transmission? When, when will we find that out? Maybe a month? Uh, uh, any Honestly, point, next maybe? week. Next week. Cool. Cool. Why? Why next week? Pfizer said last week that they would know in two weeks. <laughs> That's a great answer. <laughs> All right. Cool. Okay, guys. One week from now, we should have this uh, information. So I can't wait to find out. Awesome. And so this is prop. This is the last question in this set before we finish off with a few jokes. Um, will things actually go back to normal after people are vaccinated? Because uh, everyone is, you know, people want that, but also people, you know, want to be safe at the same time. So there is this conflict of interest. And this question kind of gets at yeah. that pretty nicely. Um, it's a hard question. I mean, for one thing, only if enough people get vaccinated in the first place, right? Like, if we don't reach those herd immunity thresholds, and we don't reach them everywhere, meaning like, you can't have a pocket where like 40% of people are vaccinated, but next to it, 100% of people are like that pocket is going to be vulnerable, it's going to be the start of another outbreak. That's what happens with measles. Um, mm -hmm. So I mean, will we be able to go back to normal? That's my hope. Um, that will only happen if enough people actually go and get the vaccine, but we'll wait and see. I hope so. Right. So if you want it to go back to normal, getting vaccinated will help speed up that process and expedite it. Because yeah. the longer that takes, the longer we're going to be dependent on measures like masks and social distancing to reduce the spread alone. And as we've seen, it's not enough. So I think um, given how well things like masks have worked to drop down flu, we might not see them totally go away, but I don't see them becoming like permanent fixtures of our cultures. Right. Like not being permanently like you have to have them in the store, but I can see like maybe three years from now, maybe like in, in other uh, Asian countries, you know, some people are still wearing them because they like them and they, they like the effect of flu and it reduces the spread of other diseases. So, and some of them look cool. I have this sweet mask that says psychedelic research volunteer on it. And I <laughs> love it because it's just so cool. So that is, um, yeah, that is part of my fashion at some point. So I, I can see that. All right. Well, Edward, thank you for answering all of these questions. And I have three more for you that are pretty right. quick and pretty funny. So this is, this one's from one of my friends, Jennifer, I think. Will you sneak me a fresh dose out of the lab? So can you uh, pull that off for us? Uh, maybe I should have asked that while we weren't live. Um <laughs> Well, I don't have access to the lab and I haven't even been able to get one of the vaccines for myself or even my grandparents. Actually, I've been trying to get them in line, but um, we're having a shortage of dosages, which is another issue. Um, so uh, I would like so to say can't... yes, but the answer is no. <laughs> okay, so you can't steal any quite yet. Okay, so this is from my friend Dave, I think. I want it right now. How soon can we arrange that? Um, so if you don't have one yet, I'm guessing they need to talk to someone else about this. Maybe their local yeah, um, healthcare you provider. Call, you should call um, Albert Borla. He is the CEO of Pfizer. I'm sure he would be happy to get back to you. <laughs> that is a good answer. All right. Yeah. Or Moderna. You could call them too. Call them up. Yeah, but I don't remember that guy's name. Oh, yeah. So we're just Pfizer then. Cool. And this is from my friend Don. Um, he said, 
Can I give you the vaccine, which I acquire myself? I don't really know what that means, but a lot of people laugh react. I don't it, trust so... your friend Don not to give me a shoulder injury by giving me the vaccine, so no. <laughs> Sorry, Don. All right, it looks like Edward won't be taking the vaccine that you acquire yourself, so maybe next time I'll be we'll getting my do own. It. Uh, yeah, okay, cool. That sounds good. All right, well, Edward, thank you for answering all of my replete questions. Thanks, for everyone, for tuning in.